Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. Today on the show, we're talking about how business owners can attract the right candidates to their business. Welcome to the Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. I'm your host, Josh Friedemann, and our guest today is the founder of the Author Incubator and creator of the difference process for writing a book that matters. She's been helping people free their inner author since 1994, helping over 1,000 authors in transformation write publish, and promote their books. She's a Wall Street Journal and USA Today bestselling author of five books. She has a BA and an MA in journalism and media affairs from the George Washington University and a PhD in communications from the European Graduate School and lives in Washington, D.C. Here is Angela Gloria. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I like to start off every single interview with a few questions that help us to get to know you better as a leader and give us some insight for our own lives. Are you ready for these? Yeah, let's go. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? One of the best lessons I ever learned was be willing to suck. (laughs) And that really guides me in anything. I think another way to say it is done is better than perfect. But I'm willing to put things out there. I'm willing to be a student and I'm willing to be criticized. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is flexible. We've learned that. (laughs) Confident and courageous. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? If I were committed to being the best in the world at what I do, what would I be doing now? What's a book that you would recommend to leaders? I love Gay Hendricks' The Big Leap. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, what would that thing be? Pick one thing. And finally, we have our arbitrary but insightful question, which is this. As a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I want to say why, but the truth is I'm a why not person. I hope you like me anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So give, give the reasoning behind your answer here. I'm definitely somebody who feels like to be out of the box, you have to ask forgiveness and not permission. And so I think once you have that clarity on the right place to take your client, if you're truly being the leader then someone better give you a good reason not to do it that way. And so I own my role as a leader. If you come to me to get your book written, that means you and I both agree I'm the expert on getting your book written. So if you're not going to do it my way, you better have a pretty good reason why not. So I think why people might be nicer than me. (laughs) We'll be back with the rest of our interview right after this. As the leader of your organization, you have a lot on your plate. You work most of your day, leaving you little time to think about your own development. 
There's a resource for you, and it's called the Leadership Action List. Get the best leadership development tips for leaders by leaders at leadershipactionlist.com. The best news? It's free. Once again, for a year's worth of weekly leadership development, download the Leadership Action List at leadershipactionlist.com. Well, Angela, we are here today to talk about how business owners can be writing better job descriptions and attracting the right candidates to their businesses. But before that, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you do, how you help authors write books, how you help people become authors, and also who maybe should be thinking about writing a book. I'm actually going to relate that to writing job descriptions because one of my key principles in writing books is the same as writing job descriptions, which is your book should be a love letter to one person. We help businesses that want to grow to get more clients, not by writing a general book about the founder or the CEO's expertise, but instead by writing very specific books targeted to the problem or problems that business solves. And by being more specific and customized and really knowing your audience, whether you're writing a book or a job description, you attract fewer people, which might seem counterintuitive, but the people you attract are much more willing to invest their money or their time or their life force by being a part of what you do. So could you give some examples, whether they're examples from your own business or just things that you maybe use when you're talking to other people about your business of what this looks like, not necessarily focusing on the expertise, but focusing on the business? When someone comes to us to write a book, very often they have a skill or a service that would benefit lots of people. And their natural inclination is to make that circle wider. So as an example, Tammy Stacklehouse came to us. She had fibromyalgia and is a coach for people with fibromyalgia. And she wanted to write a book about her techniques that she uses to help with fibromyalgia. And frankly, they would help anyone with an autoimmune condition, maybe anyone who's alive. She's got techniques of self-care and listening to your body and making sure you set good boundaries and healthy limits and are careful about what you eat and your sleep patterns that really would help everyone. So her instinct was to broaden that topic to everyone or at the very least everyone with a health condition, a chronic health condition. What we did instead was we made it more narrow. And when Tammy worked with us, uh, she's still working with us, but at the very beginning of our journey, she founded the International Fibromyalgia Coaching Institute. And her book focuses very specifically, it's called Take Back Your Life. And it's very specifically written for someone with fibromyalgia who's through the first diagnosis stage and is now ready to get back to their life the way it was before they got sick. And those specific tools and techniques, Tammy not only teaches to her clients, but now she teaches people how to coach other people with fibromyalgia. It's much more narrow, but by being more narrow, she actually gets 
more clients and has a bigger effect because when people find her, they're like, oh my God, you're exactly what I've been waiting for my whole life. So is this an approach to writing books that all authors take, or is this just a strategic approach that people who don't have maybe a massive following of hundreds of thousands or millions of followers need to take? Is this kind of a look behind the scenes of how all authors operate, or is this a very niche focus? Yeah, I think it's a niche focus. If you are Michelle Obama, you should do it totally differently. You could still write a book quickly and efficiently if you're Michelle Obama, but you're going to have a team and you're going to tell stories and your team will write up the stories. And we already know who the buyers are and how you're making money because that's how you're leveraging your fame, your followers. But if you don't have followers or you've got, let's say, fewer than 100,000 followers, then by being more specific, we can take the few followers that you have and convert them to maximal impact. And what would the effect of a well-written book in this vein that you're talking about right here, what would the effect of that be on someone's business? Well, our minimum, we'll only take people that we know can generate at least a quarter of a million dollars from a book. And that doesn't mean they do it, but they could do it. 76% of our authors generate at least $100,000 from their book. And when you compare this to any other approach to book writing, that number is like crazy insane compared to what most authors make, which averages about $250, not $250,000. So this works consistently and it works for anyone with a business that wants to add a quarter of a million dollars. And we've had people add $3 million in a year to their business with a book. Well, I appreciate you giving us that overview. And I'd like to now transition into how we can use the power of writing and writing well so that we can write good job descriptions and attract the right candidates to our business. So first of all, you said earlier that, that writing a book and writing good job descriptions are similar. Could you run us through that one more time? And this time focuses in on how we can be writing better job descriptions. Yeah. So to write a better book, you should write for one person. And the same thing is true with a job description. Most people start their job descriptions the same and they start them. The most valuable real estate is that first paragraph. And yet almost all job descriptions start exactly the same with a description of your company. So if you have 10 job descriptions in your company, all 10 job descriptions will start by describing the company. Instead, I recommend people do exactly what we do with our books, which is to describe the candidate. In the case of the book, it's describing the reader. In the case of a job description, it starts by identifying who would be the perfect person for this role. And here's the twist. What would this job do for that person beyond a paycheck? So let's just assume the money is right, because by definition, for your ideal candidate, the money is right. What would this job do for them? Would it help them fund a beach house? Would it help them to have a better relationship with their partner? Would it help them grow as an entrepreneur? They might later want to launch into entrepreneurship. 
would it be good for building their resume for their next job as a project manager or division leader? What will this job do for them? And most people with jobs, what they think about instead is I'll give them money and they'll give me a service. So we think of what the job will do for us. Often you'll find job descriptions that describe how this person can serve you. And I talk a lot in my book, Make and Beg to Work for You, about the master-slave dialectic that Hegel writes about. And how in this dialectic, there's one person who's in charge, the buyer, the employer, and there's one person who's subordinate, the employee or the receiver of the money. But that dialectic is not actually true in the modern workplace. In a lot of ways, what millennials have taught us is that employees have the power to phone it in. You can pay them and they can do the bare minimum work. And in fact, with many employees, they'll say, with many millennial employees, they'll say, I don't care how much you pay me. It's not worth me giving up my life. And I think that's one of the greatest gifts to the economy and to business owners, because that means your employees, especially your millennial employees, which is now the bulk of the workforce, they're not going to do this job unless it's satisfying some other need inside of them. And it's our job as business owners to figure out how can we satisfy that other need. When you do that, your employees will work harder for you than you would ever work in your own business. So it's pretty transformational when you can find that win-win. And it all starts with writing a job description that addresses the needs of the buyer instead of the seller. So two follow-up questions from that. First of all, when you're writing this job description, do you have a bullet point of describing the perfect person, then explaining what the job does, or do you weave that all together? So the first thing you do is you identify who is the perfect person for this job and what problems does this job solve in their life beyond money. And you start with that first paragraph being about the reader, the ideal reader instead of you. Then you will go into explaining the tasks and those bullet points. And they're written similarly to traditional job descriptions, maybe a slight twist here or there. Then after you describe the responsibilities and those bullet points, then you'll describe the company. So there's a structure to it that I teach in my book, and it includes all the same elements, just kind of in a different order. And then another thing that I think you probably discuss in more depth, but would be helpful to have a little bit of here is how do you determine exactly who that perfect person is? Because as you were describing, make sure that you explain what that job does for that person. You have to understand what that person wants, which means understanding the motivations of a particular type of person. So how do you begin to understand who that perfect person is and what they want? Well, first of all, it starts with your company standing for something. So we've all seen this with like a Tom's Shoes, but companies that are focused on social good, that's not the only thing one could choose to stand for. So I would say the values at Amazon, for instance, are really focused on being the best. 
if you're an A student, you want that job at Amazon, your goal isn't work-life balance or getting home at 5 p.m. Your goal is like changing the world and exceptional work product. So your business has to have something they stand for first. And a lot of companies want to skip this step, but what's that saying? I forget who says it. Culture eats strategy for lunch. I think it might be a Netflix saying, without your company standing for something, it's really hard to get employees that are going to work hard. They'll do the bare minimum. They will make sure they can still collect their paycheck. But if you can stand for something beyond your product or service, that is going to get you employees that want to be part of that mission. And I think that's a big part of why people work so hard like in the Peace Corps or for certain non-governmental organizations. Because even though they're only making forty dollars or $50,000 a year, they're part of something, cleaning up the oceans or saving the orphans of Uganda. They're part of something that matters to them beyond the paycheck. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs try and solve their problems by paying more. And then they're mad when it doesn't work. They want to tell you how much they paid their employees and how little they got for that investment. But money is a part of the equation. It's important, but it's not the whole equation. So you talked a little bit earlier about how millennials have changed the conversation a little bit as far as the the value of a job and how much people are willing to give to their job, especially in comparison to other things in their lives. I don't know if you have any additional thoughts there. I'd also like to hear if you have any insight on Gen Z and how, how to be thinking about hiring younger people who are just coming out of college or a couple of years out of college. Is it a generational thing that people should be thinking about when writing job descriptions? Or is it really just a matter of finding people's place in life in that knowing that when people are coming out of college, they're looking for something different than people who are maybe trying to establish themselves in a long-term career? I feel like you're a very good student. You nailed it. Exactly. If it's an entry-level job, I'm not going to start off with the 401k details, no matter how amazing they are. I'm going to talk about maybe travel opportunities that if you're in your 40s or 50s, you don't want those travel opportunities because it means you're missing your kid's baseball game. So you nailed it exactly. First of all, I think millennials have made the world such a better place. We talk about millennials being entitled. That's like a saying you'll hear. Millennials are so entitled. But listen to what they're entitled to. And I think this is true for everyone who follows millennials. They're entitled to not working in a toxic work environment. They're entitled to making the most of their life and their time. Yup. Shouldn't we all be doing that? They're entitled to quit their job if they don't like it. Yeah, I think the cranky Gen Xers like me and um, to the extent they're still working boomers that complain about that are complaining about that because they kept a job or a relationship for 30 years they didn't like because someone told them they should. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We can't go back in time. But what millennials have showed us is like, you've got one life, live it. Money is a piece of it. Sure, I don't want to be in a van by the river, but I'm not going to work for a company that's out of integrity with my values for 40 hours a week. And I don't think we'll 
ever go back to that. And I don't think we should. I think that's such a gift of that entitlement. We've entitled the millennials with all the things that if everyone was in a job they loved, if the people at CVS love their job as much as the people at, I don't know, McKinsey, what a better world this would be. I would love to walk into every place of establishment with everyone loving their job. And of course, employers would be happier. Employees would be happier. Customers would be happier. And what you said about Gen Z, the kids coming out of college now, it's really writing job descriptions that match with where people are in life and what's important to them. And for somebody that is just coming out of college, career potential and being honest about the fact you're probably not going to work here forever. I know a lot of people who listen to the show are entrepreneurs and your company might be a great launch pad for somebody before they go back to grad school. So being able to be honest and say, this is a great job to do for two years before you go to grad school because you're going to get a foundation in what life is like in small business. And when you do an MBA, you'll have some great case studies. How awesome to be the training ground for two years before someone goes to do an MBA. That's what I mean by focusing your job description on who's the perfect person for this role and not pretending someone's going to work there forever and nothing's going to change in their life. And I appreciate the perspective on generations. I think that for a long time, millennials have kind of garnered a bad reputation, but there are, are great things about millennials. And I think it's also really important for younger generations to see what was great in the generations that came before them, to see what was great, to see things that needed to be changed, to change those things, but also continue that respect. Because, you know, on down the line, yeah, as a millennial, Gen Z is going to be uh, saying things about us soon. And then the next generation is going to be saying things. So, so it's always good to have that, that healthy respect, but at the same time, take what you've been given and, and make the world a better place in as much as you can. Now, there's one other thing that you are able to speak on, and maybe we've already kind of broached the topic a little bit uh, unbeknownst to me, but you say that there's a mistake that small business owners often make in trying to build teams. Is it connected to this job description or is it something else? So one of the biggest mistakes that small business owners make when they're building their teams is they think they can buy their way out of a problem. Usually they hire too late, so they're super overwhelmed. They get a new person with the thought, this will take work off our plates. Then the new person, they have them drink from a fire hose for two days. They're taking notes ferociously and put them in charge of things that they won't understand for months. This generally makes more work for the people training that person, and it doesn't take work off your plate. It actually puts work on your plate. That's because people, small business owners, hire for the wrong reasons and they hire at the wrong time. So you want to hire about 90 days before you'll need an employee. And I have a method in the book for how to identify that and how to fund it. But you want to hire before you need someone and you want to plan that first 90 days to not be productive. Not that that won't be productive, they'll be learning things, but it won't add to your bottom line. It's going to take up resources. So if you're already slammed 
the last thing you should do is hire. If you're already slammed, having the people there do the work will actually be less work than bringing in someone new who doesn't understand your company, your culture, your clients, or what you do. So most people hire for the wrong reasons and at the wrong time. Then when it doesn't work, they blame the employee or the former employee. And for the next person, they just try and pay more. They think they can buy their way out of the problem. But you will never buy your way out of the problem of culture. Well, Angela, I appreciate you coming on the show to share today. And before we finish up the interview, is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with, whether it's something that you'd like to reiterate from today's conversation or something we just haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Yeah, well, the one thing is I have sample job descriptions that might help people get their head around what I was saying a little better. I think reading some examples really helps. And so you can get those by going to theauthorincubator.com slash JDS. It just stands for job descriptions, JDS. And you can see a bunch of my job descriptions and how I use storytelling, narrative, and connecting with one reader to call in amazing candidates. I usually can fill a role within a week with only one or maybe two interviews, and I will often get upwards of 200 applications. So in addition to those sample job descriptions, and we'll have those linked in the show notes, is there anywhere else you'd like people to go to find out more about you and the work that you do? Yeah, theauthorincubator.com is a great place to go. If you go to theauthorincubator.com slash free books, you can get all my books for free. That's where you can learn how to write a book. And then when your book starts adding so much revenue that you need to hire, you can get my book on how to hire and grow a team. Angela, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. So glad I could be here. I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Angela. If you want to find out more about the work that she's doing, you can find out how to reach out to her in the show notes below or at lifeasleadership.com. I also encourage you to sign up for the free leadership action list if you've not yet done so. This is for leaders who are serious about improving their leadership. It's 52 different actions you can take as a leader. In other words, one action for every week of the year. So if you're serious about growing as a leader and helping others around you grow in their leadership, I encourage you to download the free leadership action list at leadershipactionlist.com. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, 
is a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, it feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.